the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. God's holy word stands today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our times. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Today I'd like to begin a short study that I call Christianity and God's Word to Israel. The purpose of this study is to consider those various views concerning the relationship of the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament to the Christian faith, those views that have been of historical significance to the church. Some of these views are not acceptable to the conservative Christian of today. First, because they are heretical in their basic theological concept, Second, because they resort to a method of hermeneutics in which allegorical rather than literal interpretation is applied to problem passages and the interpreter becomes the judge as to what the allegorical meaning should be. Or third, because they violate the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration which places all scripture on an equal level of authority. There are two views that are acceptable to conservative Christians. These are the solutions of covenant theology and of dispensational theology. Both of these concepts find wide acceptance among specific conservative groups today. However, the concept of dispensational theology offers significant advantages over the concept of covenant theology as an interpretational framework. This is the framework that correctly emphasizes the great value of the Old Testament scriptures to the Christian who is living in these last days of the church age. It does not introduce the reductive error of limiting God's purpose to just that of salvation of individual lost sinners. The ability to discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error is given to all true servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read the Apostle John's words of 1 John chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 6. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. In these days, there are many who teach a false gospel. There are others who appear sound on the essentials of the faith, but emphasize only the parts of the message of the Bible that seem to harmonize with their particular viewpoints. It's my intent to try to make this brief study informative and helpful to all believers who want to exercise discernment in the power of God. People who love the Word of God appreciate the importance of sound doctrine. They won't fall for the seductive message of the ecumenicalist who says, let's forget doctrinal differences and all unite in the love of God. 
believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have implanted within them a desire to feed upon the milk and the meat of God's Word. However, one who begins a serious study of the Holy Scriptures often finds himself facing a problem that has been around for almost 2,000 years. He discovers that he must establish some framework within which he can relate the revelation contained in the Old Testament to the revelation contained in the New Testament. That there are differences in the character of these two parts of God's Word is obvious even to the most casual reader, although the differences may often be magnified or exaggerated by one who has a narrow concept of the nature of God. Nevertheless, the difference in character between the two testaments was of sufficient import even to the church of the first century to give rise to controversy. That controversy has to this day never been resolved by means of a common solution that is acceptable to all concerned. To liberal scholars who are not constrained by a belief in the plenary verbal inspiration of all scripture, the solution to the controversy usually involves the rejection of any scripture that does not conform to their preconceived notion of what they think God should have revealed to man. To conservative scholars who realize that the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles taught that all scripture of the Old Testament was verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and that it is on an equal basis with the scripture of the New Testament, the solution to the controversy is not so simple. The doctrinal framework that is erected must account for the full validity of every verse of scripture from Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22-21. Today there are two such frameworks that are accepted by two general groups of conservative Bible scholars. Both systems claim to give full validity to God's word as given both in the Old and the New Testaments. Although there are many points of agreement between the two concepts, there are several major points of disagreement. The differences arise because of a basically different concept of the prime purpose of God in his dealing with his creatures. Only one of the concepts can be correct. The scriptures themselves provide the authority by which judgment can be made. Let's read a passage from the Old Testament that reveals God as he appeared to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai at the time of his giving of the law. This passage is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. One can't read the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments without being impressed with the general differences in the character of these two parts of God's word. To many readers, the God revealed in the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, an unapproachable God veiled in a thick cloud out of which come thunderings and lightnings, a God of vengeance that strikes terror to the hearts of his covenant people. He's a God that imposes a rigid governmental code of conduct and demands a cruel system of animal sacrifices to appease his wrath when that governmental code is violated. He's a God to be feared and not a God to be loved. On the other hand, they say, the God revealed in the New Testament is a God of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
He's a God that was so concerned about his creatures that he was willing to take upon himself the form of a man so that he might reveal to sinful mankind his nature of love. In order to do that, he was willing to suffer the death of the cross so that whosoever will may be saved. Of course, these critics overlook the many instances in the Old Testament in which the supreme love of the God of Sinai, not only for his covenant people Israel, but also for all of mankind, is plainly revealed. To them, thunderings and lightnings of Sinai and the demand for bloody sacrifices overshadow the supreme love of the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23 and the loving protector of the disobedient remnant that remained among the splendors of Persia after it had been made possible for them to return to their land that's revealed in the book of Esther and the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Also the great love manifested in John 3.16 overshadows the righteous wrath of a long-suffering God revealed in such New Testament passages as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 2 and 3 where we read, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Also, the righteous wrath of God against erring mankind is revealed in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The wrath of God is clearly revealed in the last book of the New Testament canon, the book of Revelation. One should take time to read the seal, the trumpet, and the vile judgments of chapters 6 through 19 of this book. The differences between the revelations in the two testaments become much less pronounced when these respective sections of the canon are studied in depth. However, the fact remains that there are differences. The problem associated with these differences has been solved in several different ways during the course of church history. Certain of the so-called solutions that supposedly establish a proper relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament are of such nature as to be totally unacceptable to conservative theologians. These solutions fall into three general categories, and each category violates doctrinal or hermeneutical principles that are not allowable to those who hold to the conservative orthodox view of the nature and purpose of Holy Scripture. These three categories of error can be summarized briefly as follows. Error number one, the concept that the Old Testament is of little or no value to the Christian. Error number two, the concept that the Old Testament is to be interpreted allegorically. Error number three, the concept that the entire Bible is to be viewed as religious literature and as such it is to be studied by the critical method. All three of these errors, once again, are totally unacceptable to an orthodox conservative theologian or Bible scholar of today. We'll have to, con to reserve our discussion of these errors and of the things that proceed out of them until the next broadcast because I see that my time is almost gone for today. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. 
It's so good to once again greet you in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're involved in a study that I call Christianity and God's Word to Israel. This study centers about one question. How are the messages of the Old and New Testaments to be reconciled? Over this seemingly easy question, there has been sharp controversy. In the various answers to this question will be found some of the differences in emphasis that perplex students of the Word today. Let's prefix today's message by reading the Apostle Peter's comment on the unity of both Testaments that's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. At the close of the last broadcast, I mentioned that there are three major erroneous views that have been proposed and used in past history to relate the two revelations of God's word. Today, let's consider each of these views individually. Error number one, the Old Testament is of little or no value to the Christian. There have always been those who advocate complete rejection of the Old Testament on the basis that it's of no value to the Christian. Some have even held that it's positively harmful to the Christian. Others of this general school do not go so far as to completely reject the Old Testament, but they feel that it is less authoritative than the New Testament. To this latter group, the Old Testament becomes literature that may have some value in a Christian economy, but it's definitely in a secondary position with respect to the New Testament. The history of this view can be traced back to its origin in the writings of a second century scholar named Marcion. Although Marcion was branded as a heretic by the church, he planted a seed of thought that has influenced the opinions of many other liberal Bible scholars down through the centuries. Marcion derived many of his ideas from the Gnostics, a group that came on the scene before the death of several of the apostles during the first century A.D. The Gospel of John was written during a period when Gnosticism had become a strong, perverting influence on the Christian church. The teachings of this great book of Scripture are largely directed against Gnostic ideas. Basically, the Gnostic believed in what has been labeled the dualistic notion of the universe. Gnosticism is a form of polytheism that visualizes a series of divine beings which emanated from the supreme, holy, true God. Each emanation possesses some of the divine essence, but as emanations are further and further removed from the true God, they manifest less and less of the divine essence. This heretical group believed that one of the distant emanations had become so far removed from the true God and possessed so little divine essence that he had become of, e of an evil nature. This emanation, called the Demiurge, was the creator of our physical universe, which is a place of evil. He was the God of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament was his revelation. The Gnostic believed that the Lord Jesus Christ was the highest of the emanations, and that he was sent to reveal the nature of the true God to mankind. The New Testament is his book. This concept, of course, splits the two Testaments and makes them two separate works. The Old Testament comes from a source that is imperfect and evil. The New Testament is a perfect revelation from the true God. 
Marcion's teachings resulted in a splitting asunder of the two testaments. Although the church rightly considered his works as heresy, the ideas that he formulated continued to be of influence down through the centuries. Such liberal scholars of the last century as Schleiermacher, Goff, Schnelling, Feuerbach, and others of this general school show strong Marcionist tendencies. Although the degree of Old Testament rejection advocated by each of these scholars varied, all were of the opinion that part of our canon should be relegated to a secondary position. A 20th century advocate of the Marcionist view, Adolf von Harnack, published a work in 1920 advocating that the Old Testament be rejected as scripture and be considered as a part of the Apocrypha. Other recent authors that support Harnack in his Marcionist stand were Friedrich Dietrich and Emanuel Hirsch. Perhaps better known than those mentioned above is another 20th century liberal theologian by the name of Rudolf Bultmann. Although of very strong Marcionist tendencies, Bultmann did not advocate complete rejection of the Old Testament. However, he did strongly insist that it be placed in a secondary position in the Christian's Bible. This view cannot be accepted by a conservative theologian. The rejection of the Old Testament scriptures, or even the placing of them in a secondary position with respect to the New Testament, is also a rejection of the authority and infallibility of the New Testament. It's plainly taught by both the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles that the Old Testament scriptures are the infallible and inerrant word of the true and living God. The Lord Jesus Christ was referring to the Old Testament canon when he said, the scripture cannot be broken. Era number two, the Old Testament is to be interpreted allegorically. The early church fathers were faced with the problem to which this study is directed. They realized that it's not a simple problem. The heresy of Marcion caused a stirring of these early theologians, and they came to the conclusion that the proper way to retain the Old Testament in the canon of scriptures was to read a Christian message into these Hebrew writings. As a result, they resorted to a method of hermeneutics that involves wholesale allegorizing of the Old Testament canon. That the Old Testament scriptures do contain a great deal of typology, no conservative theologian will deny. The Apostle Paul calls attention to certain types in the Old Testament in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He refers to historical happenings that are contained in Old Testament writings and then specifically states, now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, types, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world, the ends of the age, are come. By the Apostle Paul's statement, New Testament sanction is given to the reading of typical meanings into the Old Testament. However, there is a vast difference between the finding of typical significance in Old Testament scriptural passages and the utilization of allegorical interpretation as a method of hermeneutics. The problem with using an allegory as a method of interpretation is that the human mind of the interpreter becomes the standard against which the correctness of the interpretation is measured. Thus, a passage of scripture can be made to take on any meaning that the interpreter chooses to put upon it. Early church fathers such as Augustine and Origen were key figures in the allegorical form of interpretation. There's no doubt that in the allegorical exegesis of men such as these, they did uncover a great deal of truth related to intended types in the Old Testament scriptures. However, they also made some wholesale blunders. The 16th and 17th century reformers refuted the allegorical form of Old Testament interpretation and considered this answer to the problem 
of the proper position of the Hebrew Scriptures to be unacceptable. Modern scholars who consider the allegorical form of interpretation to be the proper method of Old Testament interpretation include Karl Barth, the originator of neo-orthodoxy, and Wilhelm Vischer. Modern conservatives cannot accept the allegorical method of Old Testament exegesis, which really is a method of reading New Testament revelation back into the Old Testament as a legitimate solution to the interrelationships between the two testaments. Any method of hermeneutics that relies on human logic as the standard against which the correctness of interpretation of God's word is to be measured must be viewed as faulty. God's word can only be judged in the light of God's word. Then there's error number three. The Bible is to be viewed as religious literature and studied by the critical method. The higher criticism of the 19th century brought its own particular solution to the problem of the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. These critics of the last century, of whom Julius Wellhausen is perhaps the best-known spokesman, were not restricted by a belief in the infallibility and the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. Therefore, they had no trouble in developing what they considered to be a correct relationship between the two testaments. From the point of view of Wellhausen, the Bible is just a collection of religious literature. As such, it can be studied by the same critical and historical methods that are applied to other literature of the ancient peoples. Wellhausen considered the human authors of the Old Testament as men with different backgrounds and thus different perspectives and different depths of understanding. He assumed that biblical literature had developed along an evolutionary pattern. Thus, he could easily account for the differences in the revelations contained in the two testaments. The Old Testament contained religious concepts from a former age. In actuality, according to him, it represented the evolutionary development of the Hebrew people in their concept of religion and ethics. This former development paved the way for Christianity, which represents religion in its highest evolutionary form. The Wellhausen solution to the problem of the interpretation of the Old and New Testaments is generally the solution accepted by liberal Protestantism today. In this concept, the man, Jesus, his ethics and his teachings are the highest and noblest things in the Bible. Thus, the New Testament, as it reveals Jesus Christ and his ministry, is the highest level of biblical authority. The Old Testament represents simply the outgrowth of evolutionary stages in religious development. It's of interest primarily as a record of the development of our Christian religion. This solution is, of course, not acceptable to the conservative Bible scholar of our day. It denies the inspiration and the infallibility of the Bible, and it makes Christianity a humanly devised religion. The individual is placed in authority over the Bible rather than the Bible being placed in authority over the individual. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll consider the solution of covenant theology and of dispensational theology as we continue this study of Christianity and God's word to Israel on the next broadcast. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're involved in a study that I call Christianity and God's word to Israel. This is a study of the relationship between the Greek scriptures of the New Testament and the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. On the last broadcast, I described three erroneous concepts of this relationship. Today, I'd like to bring out two different conservative concepts that are broadly accepted by God's people today. Let me open this message by reading the Apostle Paul's itemization of the three groups of people that God recognizes as being present in the world today. 
This passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Today, there are two different views that establish a relationship between the Old and New Testaments without downgrading the authority of either and without violating the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration and infallibility of any portion of the Word of God. These two differing views are embraced under the respective systems of covenant theology and dispensational theology. Although these two interpretational systems share a number of points in common, they also contrast in several important areas. One of the areas of contrast is the view of the relationship between the two testaments. Let's compare the views of covenant theology and of dispensational theology. Covenant theology is the name applied to a system of theology that conceives of the eternal purpose of God as concerned primarily with the salvation of the elect. Within this system, all scripture is considered within the realm of two covenants, which are referred to as the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. To some covenant theologians, of whom Louis Burkhoff could be considered as a representative spokesman, there's a third covenant from which the previously mentioned two covenants were derived. This is designated as the covenant of redemption. This covenant is defined by Louis Burkhoff as the agreement between the Father giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect, and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father had given him. Covenant theologians consider the covenant of works as an agreement between God and Adam that promised life to Adam for perfect obedience to God's commands, but imposed the penalty of death for his disobedience. Adam failed to meet the requirement of perfect obedience, and he fell heir to the penalty of death. As a result of Adam's failure in this first covenant, God brought a second covenant into operation. This second covenant of grace is defined as that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending but elect sinner in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ and the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. These two covenants, or three covenants, in the reckoning of some theologians of this persuasion, become the standard framework and unifying structure within which all scripture of the Old and New Testaments is interpreted. The chronological record furnished by scripture of the successive ages of God's dealing with men is, to the covenant theologian, the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose contained in the covenant framework. This view of a single unifying framework of interpretation leads to a general merging of the concept of God's dealing with man both before and after the cross and thus during the time periods covered by both testaments. Therefore, the covenant theologian sees little basic difference between God's dealing with man in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He considers the New Testament church to be just a continuation of Old Testament Israel, a point of sharp contrast between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Dr. Burkhoff confirms the previously stated position of the covenant theologian in the following words. The covenant of grace, as it's revealed in the New Testament, is essentially the same as that which governed the relation of the Old Testament believers to God. It's entirely unwarranted to represent the two as forming an essential contrast 
as is done by present-day dispensationalism. Dr. Burkhoff then goes on to make the following points concerning what he refers to as the New Testament dispensation. One, it differs from that of the Old Testament in that it is universal, that is, extends to all nations. Two, it places greater emphasis upon the gracious character of the covenant. Three, it brings richer blessings than the Old Testament dispensation. Essentially, covenant theology relates the two testaments by reading the New Testament interpretation back into the Old Testament. This is accomplished by literal interpretation of historical events recorded in the Old Testament and then applying a typical meaning that conforms to New Testament doctrine. Prophetic passages of the Old Testament are frequently given a spiritual meaning since covenant theologians believe that the church has inherited Israel's promises and these promises are either being fulfilled or will be fulfilled in a spiritual sense. Dispensational theologians charge that covenant theologians use inconsistent hermeneutics. That is, they use literal interpretation where possible within the covenant framework but spiritual or allegorical interpretation where literal interpretation becomes a problem. Covenant theology normally takes the point of view which considers the Old Testament, the present age, and the future millennium essentially parts of one progressive purpose. Dispensational theology or dispensationalism is the name applied to a system of theology that conceives of the eternal purpose of God as a revelation of his own glory in the words of Dr. Charles Caldwell Ryrie, as he manifests his character in the differing stewardships culminating in history with the millennial glory. Although dispensationalism does not consider that the salvation of the elect is the primary and all-encompassing purpose of God in his relationship with his creation, this does not mean that the doctrine of salvation is not given its proper place within the eternal purpose as visualized in this theological system. Rather, dispensationalists recognize several programs of God that are being worked out in the course of the earth's history. These programs that deal directly with mankind do involve the salvation of the elect. The various programs encompassed within God's prime purpose of manifesting his own glory include the program for Israel, the program for the church, the body and bride of Christ, the program for the Gentile nations, the program for the unsaved of all dispensations, and the program for Satan and the wicked angels. Dr. Ryrie summarizes the general concept of dispensational theology in the following words. The essence of dispensationalism is, one, the recognition of a distinction between Israel and the church, two, a consistently literal principle of interpretation, and three, a basic and working conception of the purpose of God as his own glory rather than the purpose of salvation. Within this framework, the dispensationalist erects his concept of the various dispensations or stewardships by interpretation of the Old and New Testaments in the light of the progressive covenant as they're revealed in the scriptures. He does not conceive of one all-inclusive covenant of grace, but rather he sees God's grace manifested in different ways during the progressive stewardships of world history. Dispensational theology provides a natural framework for correlating both the differences and the similarities that are noted in the revelation of God that are found in the two testaments. The church of the New Testament is a special program of God that was foreseen but not revealed by scriptures of the Old Testament and which was inserted as a great parenthesis 
in the age between the first and second advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church intervenes as an interruption in the time flow of God's program for Israel, which is to be resumed when the church is removed from the world at the time of the rapture. The tribulation period and the millennial kingdom will be times of literal fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies relating to the time of Jacob's trouble and the kingdom blessings promised to the physical seed of Abraham. The church will have a place in the millennial kingdom as the resurrected bride of Christ, but will retain a distinct position from Israel. Although most dispensationalists recognize seven dispensations as forming the total of human history, there are only three dispensations that receive prominent treatment in the biblical revelation. These three economies include God's dealings with Israel from Moses to Christ, God's dealings with the church from the day of Pentecost to the rapture, and the millennial kingdom. This latter dispensation is the golden age of the world's history toward which all previous stewardships have looked. Dr. H.A. Ironside refers to a dispensation as an economy, and he defines an economy as an ordered condition of things. He goes on to say, a dispensation, an economy then, is that particular order or condition of things prevailing in one special age which does not necessarily prevail in another. This definition leads to perfect harmonization of all scripture of both the Old and New Testaments. Both differences and similarities in the, new, in the two revelations are expected phenomena. The consistent hermeneutical principle of literal interpretation of all scripture can be followed without leading to apparent contradictions. Literal interpretation of scripture, of course, does not rule out typical meanings in the Old Testament that are related to New Testament doctrine. One of the greatest dispensational teachers of the last century, C.H. McIntosh, found a rich treasure of typical meaning in the works of Moses. Dr. Ironside, who during his lifetime published expositions of all the books of the New Testament and all the prophetic books of the Old Testament, also found a great deal of typical meaning in the Hebrew Scriptures. The dispensational framework within which Dr. Ironside worked did not require the sacrifice of literal hermeneutics in order to maintain harmony and consistency throughout all of his expository volumes. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll conclude this study of Christianity and God's Word to Israel on the next broadcast. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're involved in a study that I call Christianity and God's Word to Israel. The ability to discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error is given to all true servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle John tells us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 of his first epistle. In these days, there are many who teach a false gospel. There are others who seem sound on the essentials of the faith, but emphasize only the parts of the message of the Bible that seem to harmonize with their particular viewpoints. It's been the intent of this study to present informative and helpful information to all believers who want to exercise discernment in the power of God. People who love the Word of God appreciate the importance of sound doctrine. They won't fall for the seductive message of the ecumenicalist who says, Let's forget doctrinal differences and all unite in the love of God. Such unity would be man-made and deceptive. 
Differences continue to exist. Our key question illustrates this point, and that key question is, how are the messages of the Old and New Testaments to be reconciled? Over this seemingly easy question, there has been sharp controversy. In the various answers to this question are found some of the differences in emphasis that perplex students of the Word today. On previous broadcasts, I've described three heretical solutions to the relationship between the two testaments that have been important in past history. Many of the erroneous views of Scripture that are prevalent today trace their origin to one of these heresies. I've also described two conservative views of this relationship, both of which are acceptable to certain groups of fundamental Christians today. These two views have some things in common, but they also differ sharply in many major aspects. These are the views of covenant theology and dispensational theology, respectively. Although both of these systems of interpretation honor the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of the Word of God, only one of them can be correct in ultimate concept. In this fourth and final message of the series, I would like to further consider these two systems of interpretation. Let me prefix this message by reading Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. Of all the solutions to the problem of the Old Testament and its relationship to the New Testament, only the solutions offered by covenant theology and dispensationalism are acceptable to conservative theologians. Both of these systems hold to the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible, and both systems give full and equal authority to both testaments. However, the concept of a unifying covenant of grace based on the assumption that the eternal purpose of God is the salvation of the elect that is progressively revealed through the various covenants recorded in Scripture, the basic concept of covenant theology does not provide an adequate framework for the interpretation of all Scripture in a consistent way. The existence of such a unifying covenant of grace is not actually confirmed by the Scripture, and the assumption that God's eternal purpose is related solely to the salvation of the elect is entirely too restrictive to explain all the revelations of Scripture. Eschatology is the study of future things. It's through this area of Bible studies that many have their first exposure to dispensational teaching. Because of this, some have consciously or unconsciously supposed that dispensationalism is primarily an outline of events of the future. Dispensationalists are premillennialists. It's true that dispensational teaching and prophetic study have been inter interrelated, particularly in recent years. However, prophetic teaching has not always been the main thrust of dispensational theology. We could ask then, what are the salient features of dispensational premillennialism? The hermeneutical principle of literal interpretation of all scriptures is basic to the entire dispensational system. This affects every aspect of biblical interpretation. Dispensational theology is the only system that practices the literal principle of interpretation consistently. Some systems of covenant theology practice literalism, but not consistently in every area of theology or on all parts of the Bible. Consistent literalism is at the heart of all dispensational eschatology. The literal interpretation of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, leads naturally to an anticipation of the literal fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. This is a basic teaching of premillennial eschatology. 
If the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the promises of the future made to Abraham and David are to be literally fulfilled, then there must be a future period, the millennium, in which they can be fulfilled. The church is not now fulfilling them in any thorough sense. In other words, the literal picture of Old Testament prophecies demands either a future fulfillment or a non-literal fulfillment. If these promises are to be fulfilled in the future, then the only time left for that fulfillment is the millennium. If they are not to be fulfilled literally, then the church is the only kind of fulfillment they receive, but that's not a literal fulfillment. The dispensational premillennialist says that the church is in no way fulfilling these prophecies, but that their fulfillment is reserved for the millennium. That's one of the principal features of this system of biblical interpretation. This understanding of the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies quite naturally leads to a third feature of dispensational theology. That feature is the clear distinction between Israel and the church. This is a vital part of dispensationalism. All other systems of scripture interpretation bring the church into Israel's fulfilled prophecies except the system of dispensationalism. The covenant theologian, who is usually an amillenarian, says that the church completely fulfills Israel's prophecies and that the church is true spiritual Israel. The understanding of the how and the when of the fulfillment of Israel's prophecies is in direct proportion to one's clarity of distinction between Israel and the church. Only dispensational theology emphasizes this how and this when. The distinction between Israel and the church leads to the belief that the church will be taken from the earth before the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble and in a major sense concerns God's purpose for Israel. The doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture has become a basic part of dispensational eschatology. Originally, this was due to the emphasis of the early writers and teachers on the imminency of the return of the Lord. More lately, it's been connected with the dispensational concept of the distinctiveness of the church. Pre-tribulationalism has become and is now a regular feature of dispensational theology. The thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth is most definitely a major feature of dispensational theology. The doctrine of the millennial kingdom is, for the dispensationalist, an integral part of his entire scheme of interpretation of many biblical passages. A coming millennial kingdom is fully integrated into the whole theological system that is designated as dispensational premillennialism. These, then, are the principal characteristics of dispensational eschatology. These stand in contrast to the major tenets of amillennial covenant theology. Literal promises of a physical earthly inheritance of the promised land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, according to Genesis 15:18, was made to the physical seed of Abraham. Such a promise was never fulfilled in history, and there's no hint in the New Testament that this promise was transferred to the church. The promise that the Lord made to the church is, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Scripture never indicates that the church of the New Testament is spiritual Israel. In fact, there are several references to both the church and Israel as still in existence together throughout the New Testament. 
One of these is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32 where Paul writes, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. The only verse in the entire New Testament that can be interpreted as possibly equating the church with Israel is Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. The grammatical construction of this sentence does not answer the question as to whether Paul is referring to the church as the Israel of God or if he's simply extending his general blessings especially to that part of natural Israel that is a part of the church. In context, the latter interpretation seems preferable. That the apostles were still expecting the promise of an earthly kingdom for Israel to be fulfilled literally at the time of the Lord's ascension is made clear by Acts chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. They ask in verse 6, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? The question had to do with time, not the fact of the predicted restoration. The Lord's answer in verse 7 refers only to the time as he says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. If the kingdom promises had been transferred to the church, this surely would have been the time for the Lord to have specifically told the apostles this fact. But rather, he directs their attention to the commission of the church in verse 8, leaving the impression that the promise of the kingdom to national Israel is still to be fulfilled in due time. The framework of dispensational theology offers the proper key to the understanding of the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments. The tenets of this system of theology are being verified in this present day as national Israel is seen being regathered and the world political situation is shaping up for the enactment of the events of the seven-year tribulation period that are so vividly described in the book of Revelation. The time does not appear to be far in the future when the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. Then the church will be taken away and God will once again deal directly with his covenant people, Israel. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Once again, my time is gone. I trust that this series of messages on Christianity and God's word to Israel has been helpful to you. I'll return on the next broadcast with another series of messages from God's word. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation, for the Bible stands. This program is sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast, Post Office Box 690008, San Antonio, Texas 78269.